0: Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up the Psalm chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, feel free to check out that giant screen behind me. Also, if you do not own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. As you leave today, just swing by the table. You, you can pick up one of those paperback Bibles. Like I shared with you earlier, here at Mission, we lead, preach, sing, and meditate upon the Scriptures, and we want everyone to have a Bible. So if you don't have one, take one of those as our gift to you. Now, this morning, we're going to take a break from the book of Acts, and we're going to start a new series in the book of Psalms called... Psalms, an exile's prayer book. Why do we call it that? Because the Psalms are not so much a song book as much as they are a prayer book. And these are the prayers that the Israelites would oftentimes pray as they were in the exile. And you and I, we get to pray these prayers as we await the second coming of Jesus. And today what we are going to see is that the Psalm is going to be pointing us to trust in the happy one or the happy man. So if you got a Bible, look in Psalm chapter one. As you're looking there, let's pray. And then we're going to dive into our text. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us so unconditionally through Jesus. And I just pray right now, Father, that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. God, I have no idea what anybody is going through right now. But God, you are the one who sees the unseen. And so God, I pray that you give the gift of faith to those who don't have it. I pray that you grow faith in those who need their faith grown. Encourage, convict. Father, we just put ourselves humbly bowing down before your word, asking you to speak. So God, have your way in us and through us for your glory, our joy, the good of the community around us, and the defeat of the enemy in our city. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. How many of you have ever heard or been said to, like this has been said to you, you are the man? Anybody? Okay, one of us. Okay, one of us. Maybe you're out on the golf course and you hit a shot and somebody goes, you're the man. Maybe you show up at the very last minute to help a friend move when they are desperate and they go, you're the man. Maybe you've killed it on a business project or a school report and somebody goes, you're the man. Or maybe you killed it in Fortnite. You got a ton of kills. Maybe you built the best world in Minecraft and all of a sudden other kids are going, you are the man. And perhaps you hit that ideal weight. Or maybe you've just hit the peak of physical ability and somebody looks at you and says, you're the man. You see, Psalm 1 and 2 is all about the man, about the happy one. It's the purpose of this entire book, and many people argue it is the purpose of the entire Bible. You see, Psalm 1 and 2 talks about the man, and who is the man? Well, we're going to see by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 12, I believe it is, we are going to see that the man is Jesus. So if you got a Bible, look with me in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what we read. How happy is Jesus the one. Or in the Hebrew, it's hayish, or how happy is the man. Let me ask you a question. What makes you happy? What makes you really, really happy? You see, the book of Psalms is going to ask you this about 26 times. Some of us in here, we get really happy over a cup of coffee. We have to have it every morning. If we don't have it, our day just doesn't go well. Some of you can relate to me, and you're really happy when your steak comes out medium rare. Some of you are happy when your team wins and your friend's team loses. Others of us are happy when we get to see friends and family, and some of us are happy when they leave. And there are some of us in this room that are really excited about retirement or possibly a raise. But what you have to understand is there is a problem with all those sources of happiness. Don't get me wrong. Those are good things. They might even be God-given things. But friends, they are not lasting things. You see, the psalmist and the Psalter is talking about a joy and a happiness in Psalm chapter one that does not come and go like that. I mean, think about it. Eventually, the coffee pot is going to go dry. The steak is going to be well done. At some point, your team is going to lose and your friend's team is going to win. At some point, the family is going to leave or they might move back in. And when you think about retirement, how many of us see retirement as nothing more than trying to find the purpose of life or purpose during that time? And many of us, when we get that raise, we find out that it quickly doesn't meet our needs. Many of us have bought into the cultural narrative that the man is the one who has all this and more. The great philosopher, the killer, says it like this, I got gas in the tank, I got money in the bank, I got news for you, baby, you're looking at what? the man. You see, they're a Las Vegas band. You don't know this? He says, I got skin in the game. I got a household name. I got news for you, baby. You're looking at the man. I don't feel no pain headed to the hall of fame. I got news for you, baby. You're looking at the man. And my question is really this. Seriously, how many of you have ever had your gas tank run out? How many of you had your bank account go empty or into a negative? How many of you feel pain in your body And how many of you have had your reputation tarnished? I know I have. You see, the Psalter isn't talking about a happiness that comes and goes like that. That's not the man. Rather, what the Psalter is talking about is the truly happy person. The truly happy one is one who has a deeply rooted sense of joy that comes from God's grace and goodness in their lives. So what does that look like? Well, the Psalter is going to tell us what it looks like by first telling us, what it is not. You see, he says, happy is the one or happy is the man who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. The idea behind walk is not referring to your stride and your strut, but to the, the direction of your life. The Psalter is saying, happy and blessed is the man who is not influenced by what the wicked say or does not adhere to worldly advice. You see, what do you really look up to and admire? Who do you seek to spend most of your time with? What do you tend to listen to and what do you tend to watch predominantly? Is it CNN? Is it Fox News? Is it Disney? Is it Netflix? Is it ESPN? And the question I have to ask for you is, do those things that you are watching and listening to and viewing, do they spur your passions and affections for God or do they spur your passions and affections for sin? You see, those who walk in the counsel of wicked are those who are influenced by what the wicked say. They look up to them in their ungodly way of life. They start to accept their advice of those who are far from God, and they begin to imitate them. Why? It's because you and I will always seek to imitate and resemble whatever it is we most admire and esteem in our hearts. When I was a freshman in high school, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, and I did not know anybody. But when I walked in, there was this kid there by the name of Andrew and I noticed he had a ton of friends, so I started hanging around him. And guess what happened As I started to esteem this guy in my heart, wanting to get friends like he did. I started to say what he said. I started to do so with the mannerisms in which An- Andrew spoke. And I'll never forget one day when I said something in response to another student, and they looked at me and they said condescendingly, Okay, Andrew, why did they say that? Because I was acting like the one I most admired. You see, now if if we're going to be influenced by the wicked, if we're going to walk with them and walk in their counsel, we will not stay stagnant. You see, sin is always looking to take more and more ground in our hearts and in our lives. It will progress. And that's the idea the Psalter wants to share with us. You see, he says, blessed or happy is the man or the one who does not walk in the vice of the wicked or what? Stand in the pathway of sinners. You see, if you follow in the counsel of those who are far from God, you will find yourself standing with them and you'll find yourself identifying with them. My son this past season decided to join a new club soccer team. No longer am I coaching, no longer am I coaching him, so he took off that jersey and he puts on the new jersey of his new club. At no point will he ever go into a game or go into a practice wearing his old club's jersey. Why is that? He's no longer standing with them. He's no longer identifying with them. He's identifying with a new group. And that is the idea the Psalter is trying to convey to us in a negative way. He says, you will not just walk with them, you'll stand with them, you'll identify with them. They'll become your people and their lifestyle and their attitude towards ungodliness will eventually become your attitude and your lifestyle. And where does it go from here? It gets worse. Look at the end of verse one, or sit in the company of mockers. You see, you don't just walk with them, you don't just identify with them, but now those who follow in this pattern are influenced. They influence others to follow in their example. One theologian says it like this, mockers are missionaries for wickedness. This past year, we have seen very like, well-known Christian celebrities, if you will, renounce their faith. And you know, one of the things that's always interesting to me As they don't just renounce their faith and deconstruct their faith, but they try to encourage other people to follow in their example and to walk away and what? Deconstruct too. They call evil good and good evil. They mock godliness and make people feel stupid for loving God and loving others. And notice the progression within this first verse. The slowing down, if you will. You walk, then you stand, and then you what? You sit. Many of us can remember back to high school, being in a cafeteria similar to this one. You walk in and you see a table and you went down and you sat at a table. And what did that mean? Those were your friends. Those were your associates. Those are the people you identify with. That is what the Psalter is trying to get across. You see, the happy one, according to the Hebrew construct of verse one, the happy one is the person who never does any of that. Can anybody put their hand up and say, that's me? I know I can't. So where's the hope in this? Listen, it's coming, okay? It's coming. You see, what do those who walk, stand, and sit with the wicked look like? Well, the answer is in chapter 2. Don just read it. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and the anointed one. They say, let's tear off the chains and throw their ropes off of us. What does the counsel of the wicked look like? Well, the Psalter says that the council of the wicked are those who mock Jesus. These nations are raging. They are plotting against who? Against the Lord and his anointed one. They are essentially saying God is not king and Jesus will not reign. They claim that their commands are not for their good, but to kill their joy. And so they try to get them off of them, break free from them to live autonomous lives. What we see happening in chapter 2 is creatures trying to overthrow the creator. But not only are they trying to be the creator themselves by shirking off God's rule in their life, but they also persecute and go after all those who pledge allegiance to King Jesus. And the question I have for you and the question I had in the text this week is, does that make somebody happy? I mean, are these people free? C.S. Lewis compares this attitude like a fish that wants to be free from water. So he flops out of the ocean. True, he is free from water, but when he's out of the water, is he happy? Absolutely not. You see, the fish is made for water, and you and I are made for God. That's the point the Psalter's trying to get across. And some of you might remember all the way from Acts chapter 4, verse uh, what is it, 23. Okay? Acts chapter 4, verse 23. That when the leaders, the religious leaders persecuted the church, listen to what they quote. Listen to this. After they were released, that's Peter and John, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father, David, your servant, who is the author of this psalm, why do the nations rage, or Gentiles rage? And the people plot futile things. The king of the earth, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. What does the early church in the book of Acts quote when persecution comes their way? They quote Psalm 2. They see this persecution is the same sort of foolish rebellion. And notice that the rulers plot in vain. Why is that? Because we've studied Acts. And when the church is persecuted, does that stifle the church or does it grow the church? It grows it. They do not stop. What we have to understand, and listen to me, Mission Church, the world cannot stomp out the church. It cannot remove it. It cannot exterminate it. Why? Because the one who is behind it cannot be defeated. And what is his name? God. You see, you and I, we cannot overthrow God. We can't outrule God. We cannot get him off his throne. He won't allow it. Nor are we able to. And when you and I can go over to Rome and we can enter into those coliseums in which they would take Christians and they would throw them in there, burning them and skinning them alive, feeding them to wild animals. And we will look in that coliseum and guess who is no longer in power? Rome. The coliseum is empty. But let me ask you a question. For 2,000 plus years, has the church of Jesus been alive? Yes. Yes. Because no matter what befalls this nation or any nation, the church of Jesus will continue on because God is behind it. You see, happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit at the feet of mockers. Rather, the one who is happy is the one who delights and meditates upon the word. Listen to verse 2. It says, instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. Now, the word here for instruction is Torah. And it's not just referring to the first five books of the Bible. It's referring to the entire Old Testament. And what David is saying is those who love God want to know what God says. They want to please God. What do they do? They mutter on his word day and night. You see, in chapter 2, in which we saw mockers mutter basically vain, evil plans against God. But those who love God don't mutter plans against God. They mutter the words of God. They recount them. They rejoice in them and they rehearse them in everything they do. And notice nobody has to make this man do this. Why? It's because it's his delight. What do you delight in? And do people have to make you do that which you delight in? Absolutely not. I delight in a medium rare steak. It's no, no, no news to you. Talk about it about every third sermon, right? I delight in it. I delight in Kentucky basketball. I delight in my wife and my kids. Does anybody have to command me to engage in those things? No. And when I lived in Cincinnati in college, I was dating my wife, Jess. And while I was up there, she would email me. Now, when an email came through and it had my wife's name on it, do you think I just put that away to save it for later? Absolutely not. I opened it up. I read it. I read it morning, noon, and night. I reread them. I saved them. Why? Because I love her, and I love what she writes, and I I want to learn more about her. And in a similar way, those who delight in God meditate and do his word. Why? They love God, and they want to know God. Notice the order of the words. He says those who delight, what? Meditate. Think of delight referring to the heart. and Think of meditate referring to the mind. Both are needed to bring about transformation. But which one is the driver? I told you I would talk about chocolate chip cookies. Last night, chocolate chip cookies were made. I was told, eat one. My mind was telling me, eat one. But what was my heart saying? Eat them all. I didn't do it because I love you guys. Okay, those who are at the membership class, I love you. I didn't eat them all. But I can't tell you how many times a plate of cookies will be before me. In my mind, I know I should only eat one, two, but I end up eating 10 or 12. Why? Because my heart drives it. And what the Psalter is saying is that what you delight in in your heart, your mind will follow. Jesus says as much in John chapter 14, verse 15. Listen to what he says. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. How many of you have ever seen an orange tree straining to grow oranges? How many of you have seen an apple tree just going, and boop, an apple comes out? None of us. Why? Because an orange tree makes oranges. Apple trees make apples. And what Jesus says here, and this is very important because it's future active indicative, which is just a fancy way of saying that Jesus doesn't say you might do this. He says, if you love me, you will do this. You will keep my command. You see, Jesus says, "Love for Him precedes consistent obedience." and the Psalter says, "Delight precedes meditation, and when we ultimately delight in God, we will constantly day and night mutter and rehearse and recount and rejoice in His word. What does that look like? It Looks like a cow. How many of you have ever seen a cow chewing on some cud? kind of gross. Some of you are like, I've never seen it, but I've read it in a book, okay? I grew up in Kentucky, you see it. What does a cow do? He chews on it, then he swallows it, and then he kind of regurgitates it back up out of the stomach, and he chews on it again, he repeats this process over and over and over, trying to extract every single nutrient from that food. And that is the picture, that's someone who delights and meditates on the Bible, that's a picture of what they do. They chew on it, and they chew on it and they chew on it until they can get every nutrient possible out of it because they love who? They love God. And the question you have to ask yourself, and the question I ask myself this week, is are you in the Word of God? Are you reading the Word of God, and is the Word of God getting in you? Do you read the Bible in your personal time? Do you talk about the Bible with other people? Do you come under the preaching of the Bible in the Sunday gathering? You see, those who love God love his word. And in my house, it is no, no secret that we love to eat. And so you know what my wife did? She went over the chalkboard and she wrote this on it, Psalm 63, five through eight. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of night, of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Why do you think she put that in the kitchen? Because that's where we go to eat, and she wants to remind us that we are to be satisfied and thirst and hunger for the Word of God more than we do for food. Because food comes and goes, right? But the Word of God is the truly everlasting nourishment that a Christian needs. And that's why she put that in there. You see, what does the life of a happy one who delights in meditate in God's word look like? Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The Psalter, David, gives us an illustration here. He says, talks about how this psalm is written in a desert region. And in order for a tree in the desert to survive, it needs to be connected to what? Water. Okay, like three of you are with me. What is it? Water, right? It needs to be around water. But notice the intentionality. Did this tree randomly appear here? Absolutely not. It was planted here. That means that its growth is not accidental. You see, when water is absorbed into that tree, it bears fruit. And when a Christian roots themselves next to the flowing stream of God's word, guess what? They bear fruit in their lives too. But notice what the fruit is for. We talked about an orange and an apple tree. We talked about them straining. They don't have to strain. But let me ask you this question. How many of you seen an orange or an apple tree take a piece of its fruit and eat it itself? Nobody. It's called cannibalism, right? It's looked down upon in many societies, right? Like, they don't, an apple tree doesn't eat its apples. An orange tree does not eat its oranges. You see, the tree does not bear fruit for itself, but for others. And when the water of the word bears fruit in our lives, it makes us benefit, like makes us beneficial to other people. You see, the Psalter says that we will prosper when we seek to benefit others. Why? It's because our leaves will not wither. They will not dry up. You come into my backyard right now. You come into my backyard. There is a bush there that is a fire hazard. And then I have two trees that look glorious. Why is that? Because water was cut off to that one. I don't know why. I'm not really that great in the backyard. That's why I put in turf. I don't ever have to do anything to it. But the other ones, the water is plentiful. They're thriving. This one is withering up. Jesus says that when we are connected, David says, when we are connected to the Word, we are like a lush plant that bears fruit that is beneficial to others. And what you have to understand is that the prosperity it's talking about here is not necessarily wealth and health, but rather it's talking about when the drought hits, when trouble comes, that when we are connected and have our roots deep into the Word of God, you and I will not wither, we will not dry up, for the word of God nourishes us. And if our roots are deep in God's word, even in the midst of the drought, even in the midst of the trial, we will be beneficial to others. Several years ago, I lost a really good friend to cancer. And it was so fast. He had a brain tumor. The only way we found out about it is because he got dizzy, and he was really fatigued. I took him into the hospital. Two weeks later, he died. Yet each and every day over those two weeks, I visited my friend. And every time I walked in there, he had a smile on his face and the joy of Lord in his life, and he would just tell me about the goodness of God. Even the nurses and the doctors that were caring for him would talk about, this is the most joy-filled man we've ever met. He's got a death sentence, but all he keeps talking about is the goodness and the grace of God. When he came out of surgery, I'll never forget this, I leaned up to him and I said, hey, bud, how you doing? He goes, I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to get you that steak. You see, he knows what I love. I remember he said it. I will never forget him saying, Easter, I will be there. I will do the computer for you. Don't take me off the schedule. He never made it. Yet when I did his funeral, people who cared for him showed up. Why? Why? Because in the midst of the drought and in the midst of the trouble, my friend was faithful to continue to be bold and share, and he was a benefit to other people. You see, seasons of drought are not a matter of if, but when. And what we need to know is as follower of Jesus, we are not exempt from the trial and the trouble. Yet those who have their roots deep into the word of God can withstand any drought that comes their way and still even in the midst of it be a blessing to other people. mean, isn't that awesome? I mean, that's such a glorious truth. But David tells us, sadly, not all will experience this joy for not all are connected to God and his word, but they're connected to other things that won't last. Look at verses four through five. It says, the wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. You see, the Psalter gives us another illustration here. He says, the wicked will not stand for they have no roots the image that you and I are supposed to get is a farmer who's trying to shuck like corn or grain, that as they go into the threshing floor and they throw that up in the air and the wind blows, the chaff, which is like you know the, the stuff that, that has no root to it, like the, the hay and the straw, what happens to it? It blows away and that which is edible falls back down. You see, those who are not connected to the life-giving word of God, those who are not delighting in God and delighting in his way, David says, are like chaff. They're no benefit to others. They're straw and their actions are straw. And instead of being a solid tree, they're a hollow shell. When crisis hits or when something troublesome happens to them or somebody else, they're not able to survive spiritually because they just end up blowing away. And what David says is that they will not have a leg to stand on in the judgment that they will not be a part of God's people. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves is as we read this text, is this us? Sure, it may not be true now, but there will be a day in which it is true and the drought and the trouble comes. And the question David is just saying is, what are you rooted in? What are you plugged into? Is it nourishing? You see, mission, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Look at verse chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 again. It says, Those enthroned, or the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Now here, understand this. The Lord is not ridiculing what will become of them. He's actually laughing that they think uh, they can overthrow him. This is kind of like when my youngest daughter comes up and wrestles with me. It's hilarious. She doesn't stand a chance, okay? That's what he's laughing. at. he's like, how arrogant are you that you think you can dethrone me? You can't do that. And he's like, "Huh." You think you got a shot? You go with no shot at this title. That's what he's saying. It says, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. David is the author of this song. At this point in his life, there is no temple in Jerusalem. Who is David talking about? He's talking about a greater one that will come. How do I know? He says it in the next verse. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, capital S, and today I've become your father. Every single time this verse is quoted in the New Testament, guess who it's referring to? There you go. Everybody gets an A, okay? It's referring to Jesus. Think of Jesus at his baptism. That as he comes out of the water, the spirit descends. And what does the father say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well please. And what does God say to his son? Ask of me and I will give the nations uh, your inheritance. I will make the nations your inheritance. And the ends of the earth your possession. The blessing of Abraham. Jesus is the one who receives it. He goes on to say, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. You see, the Lord laughs against those who plot against him because his delight is in his son, Jesus. And if you know the Old Testament, you know in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives a promise to David that he will be a part of an eternal kingdom and one of his descendants will sit on his throne forever. And when Jesus came, guess who he is? He is the promise made and he's the promise filled. He is the one who is going to sit on the throne of David forever. Not only that, he has the iron scepter. If you look in Genesis chapter 14 and number 17, you know the scepter comes from the tribe of Judah. And in a single blow, Jesus is going to destroy the enemies of Israel. You see, Jesus cannot be voted off his throne. He cannot be overthrown. He cannot be impeached. It can't happen. He is the king of kings who's above every single king. And how hard is it for him to overthrow the nations? Well, how hard is it for you and me to shatter pottery? It's not that hard. Came home the other night from a date to find one of my kids on the couch with a blanket over this child and tears running down the face. Why is that? It's because while we were out, that child dropped one of mommy's new plates. Now, these new plates were known not to be indestructible, but pretty durable. Not to chip or crack easily. Yet, I will tell you, small child drops it this far, it has a crack in it, okay? And I want you to think about the image that Psalter is giving us, that Jesus is coming and those who plot against him will not throw off his commands because it is futile. With an iron scepter, he can crush them right now. You see, those who are against him, the wicked, will not stand in the judgment or sit with the assembly in the assembly of those who are his. Why? Because their kingdoms will not last. They will all be blown away like chaff. You see, the Psalter tells us there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are rooted in Christ and those who aren't. There are those who know the man and know the happy one and those who don't. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Perish. The question, according to the Psalter, is not so much do you know God, but does God know you? And what this is talking about is not just mere factual data. Absolutely, God knows the numbers on your head. He knows the day you were born, the day he will die, you'll die. But rather, this knowing refers to a relational type knowing. And the question you've got to ask is: God know you as a son or daughter who is trusted in His Son, Jesus. Do you have the smile and approval and the loving affections of God upon you because of Jesus? God knows the hearts of those who are his and those who aren't his. God knows the hearts of those who will be with him forever and those who will be separated from him forever. And if you want to be the happy one, listen to me very clearly. You have to be in the happy one, the happy man, Jesus. Why? Look at the very end of Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, 10 through 12. So now kings, be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent, can't say that right now. Reverential, yeah, ah, and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or He will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for His anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in Him are what? Happy, and who is the Him in verse twelve? It's Jesus. You see, God laughs, but he also reaches out to these very nations he's laughing at, not in judgment, but in grace and rescue. Those who are against him will perish. They don't stand a chance. But those who are not just with him, but in the one, in him, the happy man, guess what? They will be happy forever because they'll be with God. And that's why God, though he laughs at these nations, he now pleads with them to turn, to repent, and to come back to him. You see, friends, the problem with these verses is that all of us can find ourselves falling short. None of us can live out Psalm chapter one, verse one. All of us know times in our life in which we walked in the counsel and the advice of the wicked. We can all recall times in which we stand, and stand in the way of sinners. And if you're like me, I can remember the point in my life in which I would sit and mock those who love God. None of us are exempt from this. You and I are anything but the man. And when you look at the Hebrew construct of verse 1, you've heard me already say it. I think it's a call perfect 3MS, whatever that means. But I know what it means, but you know what I'm saying. It's basically saying this, that the happy man is the one who has never at any point in their life done any of those things. Can anybody raise their hand and say, that's me? No. No. But is there one who can raise his hand? Yes. And what is his name? Jesus. And all those who take refuge in him are what? Happy. You see, Jesus is the blessed one. He's the happy one. Jesus is the man, not you and me. And there's this old pastor by the name of Joseph Flax who was visiting Palestine. And he had the opportunity to address a room of Jews and Arabs. He decided to open his Bible to Psalm chapter 1, and he read it out loud. He talked about the Hebrew construct of the whole thing. Then he looked at his audience, and he says, Who is the blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? This man never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of mockers. He was an absolutely sinless man. Nobody spoke. Nobody raised their hand. So Flack goes, Flax goes, well, was he our father Abraham? And somebody responded, no, it cannot be Abraham. He denied his wife and told a lie about her. He says, well, what about the lawgiver Moses? And again, somebody spoke up and said, it can't be Moses. He killed a man and lost his temper in the wilderness. He says, well, what about David, the guy who wrote it? And they said, absolutely not. He's an adulterer and a murderer. And then there was a long silence. It says, an elderly Jew rose and he said this, my brothers, I have a little book here. It's called the New Testament. I've been reading it. And if I could believe this book, if I could believe this to be true, I would say the man of the first Psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus agrees with him. You see, Luke 24, verse 44, listen to what Jesus says. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about who? Me. And what? The law of Moses the prophets, and the psalms must be fulfilled. You see, those who read this psalm know that nobody knows that nobody can live up to it. Abraham, struck out. David, struck out. Moses, struck out. Jesus, grand slam game winner. That when you and I look at this psalm, we shouldn't look at it necessarily as a to-do list, but rather we should look at this in the joy of who Jesus, who did this for us. And when that delight fills your heart, guess what you do? You live this out. Why? Delight, love, precedes obedience. You see, when Jesus came, Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, that is God, made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. You see, do you want the happy life? Do you want the blessed life? Then look to Jesus. You see, in Jesus and Jesus alone, you and I can be happy. That we can only be happy if we trust in the man of Psalm 1 and 2. How? Not because of anything you and I do. Think about what Jesus has done. Jesus lived the perfect life in which we struck out. We all admitted. We've sat with mockers. We've stood with sinners. We walked in the counsel of the wicked. Guess who never did? Jesus. But then Jesus went to the cross and he stood there on the cross to identify with us, not to condone our sin and to rejoice in our sin, but to do what? To die for our sin. And then he rose again, and he told you and me he would not leave us as orphans, but in John 14, he said he would send his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to turn our hearts from sin to Jesus. You see, it's only Jesus and Jesus alone that you and I can have the deeply rooted sense of joy and grace that comes from God into our life. His obedience, don't miss this, please. His obedience is our obedience. Why? Because he gave it to us. And the same spirit that raised him from the dead, listen to me, dwells in those who trust in him. This past week, I was talking with the youth group here at Mission. And at the end, listen to me, this was, this was a trip. At the end, I looked at him, I said, let me ask you a question. Does the same spirit that Jesus gives when we're saved, does the same spirit reside in you that resides in me? Some of them raise their hand, yeah, some of them are not so sure. And I've said this to elementary kids when I was a children's pastor. I said, you need to understand something. When Jesus saves you, he doesn't give you a happy meal size of the spirit. You know what I'm saying? With a little toy to play with. He gives you the super size. And they're like, the big fries? And I'm like, yeah, the big fries of you. Like, follow the analogy. He doesn't give you a small spirit. He gives you the same spirit that resides in me the same spirit that resides in the Apostle Paul and the very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead so that you can know the love of the Father. You see, the truly happy one isn't found in hitting the perfect shot, killing it on the test, or building the best world in Minecraft. It's not found in the best cup of coffee, the best best tasting steak, in your team winning, or in obtaining the ideal physical appearance. Why is that? It's because, friends, I played golf. You're going to miss the shot. It's going to happen. You will fail the test. Your world in Minecraft will be blown up. Don't believe me? My son did it to my daughter. That was like World War III. Blew up our world. I had to tell him, we don't blow up people's worlds. The coffee's going to run out. The steak will be well done. Your team will lose, and you'll get older and lose that image. truly happy one is the one who trusts in Jesus. And so this week, as you pray Psalm 1 and 2, don't just pray, Jesus, make me like this. Yes, pray that. But also thank Jesus that he was this for you. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us so unconditionally through Jesus. And I just pray right now, Father, as we go through this series and go through this book, show us more of who you are. God, help us to be people who are happy, who are blessed, who cherish you and your word. God, give us hearts that long for your word, that delight in your word. And help us to have Holy Spirit empowerment to do the word, to live it out. Father, I thank you for my friend in that hospital room. He didn't look like the man he didn't have gas in the tank, he didn't have money in the bank. He didn't he just was there. He knew there was no way he's getting out. But even in the midst of that despair, he was filled with joy and courage. Why? Because though he wasn't the man, he knew you, the man Jesus. And I pray that for everyone here. Those who know you, God, grow them to know you more. Help them to see Jesus bigger and better in their lives. For those who don't know Jesus, God, I pray that you give them the gift of faith, help them to see Jesus with clear eyes, receptive ears, and a longing heart. Do all this, God, for your glory, our joy, for their joy, and for the good of the community around us and the defeat of the enemy. We pray also in your name, Jesus. Amen.